is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in L.A. In Alabama, 70% of adults not vaccinated. One state lawmaker in California tired of people who refuse to get vaccinated. She's now calling to make the vaccines mandatory. NFL teams could be forced to forfeit games if not enough players are vaccinated and there's a COVID outbreak. Tokyo Olympics underway. Even more and more athletes testing positive for the virus. Can they get across the finish line? We start with a problem in a number of southern states. Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, and Arkansas continue to have the lowest vaccination rates in the nation. Dr. Rachel Lee, epidemiologist at the University of Alabama. Doctor, seems like the numbers are pretty bad in your state right now. Yes, unfortunately, um, that's what we are continuing to see here in Alabama. Our rates are abysmally low. We're about 33% fully vaccinated here in Alabama. And what do you think the problem is? Is it just straight mistrust of the vaccines? Is it people thinking this is the first round of COVID, which maybe they avoided or maybe got, and now they're going to be okay? This is also an all the above situation, but I mean, when it's that low versus, you know, where other states are and hope to be 60 and then maybe climbing towards 70, that's still a huge gap. So that's a lot of people who can still get this. Right. I agree with you. I think it's multifactorial in talking to my patients that are not fully vaccinated. You know, the first concern always is that the vaccine is worse than the disease itself. And if we think about some of the data that's out there, you know, this case fatality rate not being worse than 98%. So you may think, oh, I'm going to take my chances by getting COVID because the chance of me dying is incredibly low. I think that's uh, unfortunately kind of cutting the data in the wrong way, um, because what we know now is that patients can have severe illness, they can have long COVID, um, and really what we want is to protect our patients from getting these symptoms. And if we have something that is safe and effective, and over 3 billion people worldwide have received COVID vaccines, then I think that's where we need to start thinking through this and saying, yes, we can trust this vaccine. It is safe. You know, we mentioned at the very top of this that uh, viral video uh, of a doctor uh, in Alabama who had patients who had been unvaccinated, who got COVID, were dying and, and thought that the vaccine might be something they could now take to help cure them. Have you encountered any patients like that? You know, I haven't um, I've seen patients like that because it typically when they are, you know, in the throes of dealing with an active infection, I care a lot about their symptoms and I try my best to not make them feel that they've made a big mistake by not getting the vaccine. So really the key here is, is prevention, right? We really want to catch people before they could ever be exposed and talk about their concerns um, and that's where I think we have a lot of movement. If you've got family members that have received COVID vaccine, what we know from the data is that people trust their family members and they trust their primary care doctors. And I think that's where the grassroots movement will truly be. Um, but it is heartbreaking to hear the stories that are out there where patients are just begging for, um, you know, a chance to, to do things over. Do you think people think that there's an easier treatment than there is, whether it's, you know, name your your Internet drug of choice. Uh, there's different posts about different things and it goes around and there's nothing proven that can really, really help you out at this at this stage of 
of the pandemic. So do you think people go into the hospital sometimes thinking, oh, well, they'll be able to, to get me out of this when in all actuality, if you're going to the hospital, you're in a really bad spot. Right, right. I mean, I think if you think about the the data that we have for treating COVID-19, it's really not a lot. We have, you know, we have our remdesivir, we have steroids, um, and we have some of those monoclonal antibodies. But I will tell you right now, that the data behind vaccination is much, much stronger than the data behind those because we've given it to so many more people. Um, and I think a lot of people are waiting now for that FDA stamp of approval. Um, but the data here, we've, we have more people that have been given the vaccine before approval compared to any other vaccine that's ever been out there. Dr. Rachel Lee, epidemiologist, University of Alabama, Birmingham Hospital. Vaccination rates have been falling across the country, even in places where there's less resistance to vaccines, like California. More than half the people in the state are fully vaccinated. But we got 40 million people, so it leaves a lot of holdouts. Still, there is a state lawmaker says so she wants to have a mandate in place. Democratic Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks from Oakland is with us. So, Assemblywoman, your reasons for wanting to make this mandatory, have that passport system if you want to go out and do something. Sure. You know, I think we can all agree we're in a surge now with the Delta variant, you know, and if you look at the cases in hospitals, it's almost 100% people that are unvaccinated. And, you know, basically we need to decide, are we taking this seriously or not? And I think when we think about that question, it begs the question, how are we actually enforcing that people get vaccinated? You know, and I think about in my day-to-day life, I go to the gym, I go to a restaurant, I go to my place of employment, you know, if I'm going to a movie theater, which I haven't done yet because I'm not quite that comfortable yet, um, have I ever been asked to show proof of vaccination? And the answer is no. And I would venture to say most of your um, audience hasn't either. Um, And we actually have a verification system that the California state government put together where you can get a unique QR code. Uh, And I just don't think people are using it. And so I tweeted out the idea that we should be mandating vaccinations because I wanted to start a conversation about this and urging employers and businesses to require proof of vaccination to be able to enter their premises. Uh, We know that legally they can do that. Um, And I just think we need a cultural shift around people saying, you know what, it's time that we do this. Um, You know, we've seen the uptick in vaccinations start to level out. Uh, And so I think it's going to require more enforcement around um, requiring people are vaccinated. You know, and and that's the interesting thing uh, that I think you just said uh, about uh, employers uh, and and the legality of it. And we've had many experts on the, the program talk about that. The law apparently is clearly on the side of employers mandating vaccinations, especially during a, a pandemic. And yet you keep hearing about uh, employers, all kinds of, of them, uh, coming up with all sorts of excuses. They're worried about litigation. They're worried whether or not uh, they can force employees to do this sort of thing. They worry that they're not going to be attractive to other uh, potential employees. How do you address that to employers? Yeah, and it's a great question. And I've heard those same things as well. And I've also I've, I've spoken to school boards and, you know, local municipalities in my district who say we want to require this, but we're worried about lawsuits. Um, and so one of the ideas that I have and we're exploring this right now is looking at potential legislation that makes it crystal clear that this is legally uh, doable and that would dis- disallow any kind of uh, frivolous lawsuits to take place. Um, uh, specifically on this specific COVID-19 vaccine requirement. Um, So I'm exploring legislation right now that I think would help get rid of that argument. 
um, and make sure that employers understand that they can do this. It's still incumbent upon them to do it. Um, but I would also make the argument, you know, as I mentioned, I go to a I go to a gym and work out. I would personally feel much safer if they asked me if I was vaccinated and had me show my QR code. And I, I think a lot of my fellow vaccinated um, guests in that facility would agree. And so I actually think if you can turn this into this is actually a benefit to businesses that people feel safer going to the gym, they feel safer going to a movie theater if they know that vaccination will be required. That's where I think we need to get. There's the business side, then there's the political side. Uh, the governor has been careful to say, no, 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 we're not doing mandates, we're not doing passports, even the digital QR code that comes from the state. They've never called it a passport, it's just the digital backup verification system. Would it be a thousand times easier if he just came forward and said, you know what, we're doing this? Well, you know, I think the governor's done a tremendous job leading during a, a, a very unprecedented time, you know, and, and he's navigating this, I think, very well and has been very forthright on pushing for more, um, you know, testing capacity throughout. You know, he made tough decisions around closing schools and closing businesses and has really led the charge on, on vaccination status. So I give him a tremendous amount of credit in terms of the work that he's done. Um, but I do think, you know, you look at what happened today in, in up in here in Northern California, uh, Contra Costa County, Santa Clara County, and San Francisco counties all did a press conference about an hour and a half ago urging employers to require vaccination, right? So you're seeing the public county health officials saying, hey, we need to take this a step further. And it's my hope that that our elected leaders will continue to, to push on that. And, and not only just elected officials and public health officials, but our leaders in the faith community, you know, our leaders in the business community, our community leaders who are out there every single day, we need to have a cultural shift where it's a norm that you get asked, have you been vaccinated? And I need to see your proof if you're gonna come into my restaurant. That's where we need to be. Let's say for a moment anyway, take some of the burden off of employers and move it to government. Uh, is there a role for government to mandate this for the state of California, for the U.S., but let's just stick to California for this. Uh, is there a role for the state to say that if you are going into any public place, whether as an employee or as a movie theater goer or as somebody going to work out in a gym, uh, if you want to leave your house, you have to be vaccinated. If you don't want to get vaccinated, then fine, stay home. Well, you know, I think a couple of things. One, you know, I want to see our local municipalities do this, right? As you've mentioned, some of them are doing it. I want to see my daughter's school, Oakland Unified School District, do this, um, you know, so it can be done at the local level. I want to see the state of California employees be required. But but here's the thing, uh, and I think you, you would agree with this. Uh, time is of the essence here. Uh, and unfortunately, legislation takes time convincing sometimes employers it takes time uh we don't have that much time eventually another mutation will arrive that probably will defeat the vaccines if not in their entirety to a larger extent than the delta very variant is now uh so a lot the, the clock is ticking how do we do this quickly you hit the nail on the head right and and you're right the legislative process takes time it's it's a it's a glacial process for a reason right um, and so how do we do it? I think we have to have the fierce urgency of now. I think it's incumbent upon all of our uh, leaders across the state to say, we're going to do this. I think it's incumbent upon our business leaders to say, we're going to step up to the plate and have a tough conversation here and require our employees to do this. Adobe's doing it as an employer. Other, other companies are doing it. The University of California is doing it. And now there's pressure on the community colleges and on the CSUs to follow suit. And so hopefully with peer pressure, 
Um, but that's uh, honestly part of the reason why I did this tweet to say, okay, guys, it's time to have an uncomfortable conversation. It's time for us to step up and say, what are we actually requiring here? And it's incumbent upon all of us to do it. Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, Democrat from Oakland. Coming up after this short break, could we see teams in the NFL forfeit games due to a COVID outbreak? America's most popular sports league is putting its foot down when it comes to vaccines. The NFL is threatening teams that they may have to forfeit games if not enough players are vaccinated and there's a COVID-19 outbreak. League hopes it'll convince more players to get those shots. Amy Trask, former CEO of the Oakland Raiders, currently an NFL analyst on CBS Sports. So, Amy, take us through this new rule. Well, the NFL is drawing a distinction. If the outbreak is due to, and when they say due to, I'm fairly certain they mean they can demonstrate that it's due to unvaccinated players, then it will be a forfeit. If the outbreak does not come from vaccinated but comes through vaccinated players, it will not be a forfeit. And again, they're going to have to demonstrate from where the outbreak is coming. But that's an important distinction because what that is saying is, look, if this forfeit is because you've got unvaccinated players, well, if this game, if you can't play because this outbreak comes through unvaccinated players, you're forfeiting. And associated with the forfeit is neither team will pay its players in the event of playoff seeding for the team that has forfeited, that goes as a loss and it goes to a win as the opponent. There are some very, very significant consequences coming from this new rule that was announced today. In our last uh, segment, Amy, we were talking with a California assemblywoman who uh, feels very strongly that uh, employers must uh, mandate vaccines. Uh, she wants to introduce uh, some legislation to that effect in, in this state. But she was right about one thing, uh, which was well, she was right about a lot of things, but she was definitely right about that the law is on the side of employers mandating vaccines. That's very clear. Uh, why doesn't the NFL simply mandate that all of the players have to be vaccinated? Well, there's an important nuance to discuss in that regard. In this instance, as is the case with many employers, it involves a union. So the NFL is doing a very good job, in my view, of working with the NFL Players Association to make sure that the NFL Players Association and the NFL itself are on the proverbial same page. So the ability to do things unilaterally is not as clear cut when there is a union in question. Now that said, the league and the union going back several weeks and, and in fact maybe a couple of months have worked together to put some tremendous incentives in place for players to be vaccinated. For example, vaccinated players will be tested every two weeks. Unvaccinated players will be tested daily. Unvaccinated players are going to have to practice in masks, whereas vaccinated players won't. And I won't bore you with all the other incentives they've put in place, like meeting rooms and training rooms and gathering together with teammates. Very, very different for vaccinated and unvaccinated players. Today's announcement was the strongest yet, but the NFL and the NFLPA have been working together to provide tremendous incentives for vaccination. And if you've got a player with a huge contract and he's a big name and he doesn't want to take the vaccine, what happens? I think we're already seeing on Twitter a um, player from the Cardinals saying, uh, I might have to question my future in this league. I, I guess what he now questions his future in the league is this, this is the rule. That's, and that's certainly his right to do so, of course. That's stating the obvious. But you raise the issue about players who are under contract, star players, key players, important players, highly compensated players, all of that. 
Then there's the other extreme on the roster, the, the men who are fighting for those last positions on the roster. And there was a saying I learned while in the league, which was the bus waits for some people. And that was a shorthand way of saying if the team buses are in the team parking lot and you're getting ready to leave on a road trip and your star player is not yet on the bus, the buses are waiting for him. If it's the 53rd man on the roster, those buses are going to the airport. He can figure <laughs> out how to get to the game on his own. So it's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, shorthand way of referring to something that is very, very prevalent in the NFL. You're going to do things for key players, key men on your roster, men with whom you cannot achieve success. And it's going to be different for those men who are trying to fight for a roster spot. So while the league is now as of now, not currently able to allow teams to cut someone simply for not being vaccinated, I will assure you that if there are three or four or five men fighting for one last roster spot at a given position, whether they say so out loud or not, and they probably won't, they're going to factor in whether a player is vaccinated or not. Amy Trask, former CEO of the Oakland Raiders, current NFL analyst, CBS Sports. Amy, thanks. Tokyo Olympics just getting underway, but there's no question that these games feel a little different. Japan is dealing with another COVID surge, and there won't be any fans in attendance. Many Japanese people wanted the games to be canceled. Michael Payne is CEO of Payne Sports Media Strategies, former marketing and broadcast director for the IOC, the International Olympic Committee. He's with us from Tokyo. So, Michael, how are things looking now with some of the competitions uh, getting started? I think there's a great sense of relief that the games are finally happening. Uh, if you go to the Athletes' Village, there is a remarkable sense of energy that their Olympic moment is going to take place. I think most of the athletes from around the world were really scared that uh, the games might not happen. This is their one chance on the Olympic spotlight, and people just want to get on with, uh, with the show. Okay, so good for them. We love to see it. These are their dreams. They're going to get to go, and they're going to get to compete. What about this other kind of feeling that we alluded to, that in Japan it's not really popular, and then even, you know, you start to tap into some of the sentiment among people who would watch it from here, and it's just you're supposed to, you know, gasp and be wowed and and the spectacle of it all, and it it kind of feels a little off this year. You know what I mean? No question. Uh, you're staged in the games in the middle of a pandemic, and it is uh, challenging times. But when you look at the situation in here, Japan, there are a few things that just don't add up. Uh, the government has banned all spectators from the Olympics, uh, yet the baseball stadiums, the sumo wrestling stadiums are full. And you, you ask yourself, what's going on? And the only assumption is that the games are caught in a major uh, political fight in the build-up to the elections. Uh, the Japanese government has been roundly accused by the local people of being slow on the vaccination, being very poor on the communications. And the Olympics has been caught in the crossfire of that because normally the Japanese public are some of the most supportive people in the world for the Olympics. Um, I think when Japan starts, wins its first gold medal, I think sentiment probably, though, will also change. All right. So there are no spectators. uh, And we keep reading here about all these polls that are showing that uh, people who live in Tokyo are not all too thrilled. But do you get a sense just from your interactions with, with people to whatever degree you have them? 
in Tokyo that perhaps they're more, and you kind of hinted at it when you said when they win their first you know, medal. Do you think that there is more uh, enthusiasm and perhaps more pride under the surface than they're willing to admit? Oh, I, th- I think absolutely. Um, I mean, the Japanese people are traditionally very, very proud and supportive uh, of the Olympics. Um, They are concerned with uh, so many foreigners coming in here, and that's understandable. Uh, But you talked about interaction with the Japanese people. There isn't any. All of the 50,000 people, the journalists, the athletes, uh, the officials who've come in here, we are locked in a bubble. Uh, You have to test every day. You're not allowed to go anywhere except to the venues. You're tracked. Uh, You can't go outside of the hotel. Uh, So the risk factor of any foreigner bringing the virus in uh, is is close to zero. Um, I think the Japanese people are starting to see that the organizing committee, the IOC, has this very tight bubble. That's probably helping to build a little bit of confidence. But there's been so much paranoia and noise built up by the politicians to try and distract from their uh, frankly shortcomings on COVID management that it's not easy. Well, that must be pretty interesting because then you get to see like the games if you're in the bubble. But I'm wondering if you're just outside the bubble, does it even feel like these are going on or just like the streetlights have Tokyo 2020 banners on them and that's about it? There's your evidence that the Olympics are happening this year. It, it doesn't feel like it to being in an Olympic city. These are my 20th games, and um, it's a very strange atmosphere. Um, but I think when the sport starts, when uh, you start seeing the incredible images on television, uh, I think it will play out around the world very well. I've been speaking to a lot of the broadcasters here, and they're expecting record viewing and ratings uh, because there is an excitement and hunger to watch the world's athletes, the world's best come forward. But the, the, the political games, I mean, are strange. I mean, we take the opening ceremony today. They have continued to cut the number of officials who can attend. Everybody in the bubble, they're all accredited, yet we're not allowed to go to their opening ceremony. There's, there's only one reason for that. Somebody's playing with the optical games uh, to show that nobody's here. Was that the same, do you think, uh, what was it, uh, the day before, I think, yesterday, when there was what I interpreted as a trial balloon that was sent up with a suggestion that perhaps if more COVID cases among some of the uh, uh, competitors kept going up, uh, they they might have to cancel after all. Uh, Was that all just for, what, domestic politics? Well, if you actually understand how a Japanese bureaucrat would answer a question from a journalist, you'd realize it wasn't a trial balloon. Uh, The media jumped all over that issue, the international media, and completely misunderstood what the CEO of the organizing committee was saying. He effectively was not answering the question. Uh, The the games are not going to be canceled. They're they're going ahead. Um, But... The, the, the politicians, I mean, frankly, they've lost the plot. They don't know what to do. Uh, and the, the focus is to get on now with the sport. And you think that uh, the doubters out there, maybe they're in this country, maybe they're there. As soon as we see the opening ceremonies, as soon as competition starts, we all kind of fall back into that, that zone that we remember from the last four years and the four years before that. 
yes, there's, traditionally there has been an increasing noise level building up to each game. You, you talked about the success of Rio four years ago. Everybody's forgotten that they were calling for those games to be cancelled because of the Zika crisis. And also, when you go in and look at the hard numbers here, in all of Tokyo, metropolitan region with a 35 million population, there are less than 1,800 cases a day. In Europe, in America, I mean, we would say that's a great success and open up everything. The numbers, it's, it's a very the, the unique situation. They're calling it a state of emergency which in any other country you would think is you know, close to panic. State of emergency here means the streets are all full. They're all going out to the bars. That There's no serving of alcohol. It's, there's a lot of contradictions we're seeing. And you know, when the politicians come back and they don't let anybody into the opening ceremony, even though you're accredited, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't add up. All right, Michael Payne, CEO, Payne Sports Media Strategies, longtime marketing and broadcast director for the IOC, talking with us from Tokyo. Michael, thanks. We've already seen a number of Olympic athletes test positive for the virus even before the opening ceremony in Tokyo. A Czech beach volleyball player has tested positive and will not take part in the games. She says that this is a nightmare for any athlete, for any Olympian who gets this far, this close to the Olympic competition. The games, though, will go on, but it looks like a number of athletes won't be able to fulfill a lifelong dream due to the pandemic. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and other originals on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.